Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Look Ahead Podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our program is brought to you by HII. Learn more about how HII's three divisions, Ingalls Shipbuilding, Mission Technologies, and Newport News Shipbuilding are delivering the advantage from seabed to space. Visit them at West 2024, February 13 through 15 in San Diego. HII delivering the advantage. And joining us today is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, hope you guys had a terrific weekend and thanks so much for joining us. We did and it's always a pleasure to be here, Vago. Uh, in, indeed, uh, it is a, a big week uh, coming up and a lot to comment on. Just a note to our audience, we are recording. Uh, we recorded this program early on Sunday uh, because uh, both Byron and I are going to be on travel uh, today and tomorrow going to uh, the Air and Space Forces Association's uh, annual warfare symposium in Denver, Colorado, where we're going to uh, be producing some coverage, uh, both for the Air Power podcast, but also for this uh, program. And I commend the audience to tune in tomorrow uh, for a conversation with the Air Force Chief of Staff, General uh, Dave Alvin, uh, talking about the reorganization of the United States Air Force that's going to get rolled out there um, uh, later on Monday. Uh, Byron, um I want to get to uh, Europe, the Ramstein uh, meeting, uh, more support for Ukraine, without which I guess that meeting might not be as important as it otherwise would. Uh, President Trump's comments and obviously the Verkunda conference that's coming up last week was a very chaotic one. Um, you know, a, a lot of uh, uh, turmoil in the GOP caucus, uh, tying Ukraine aid to a border package, creating what arguably would be the most significant border uh, and immigration reforms uh, in many decades, then members, Republican members voting against the very uh, things that they have sought for the past uh, 30 years, 40 years, uh, because Donald Trump didn't want them passed, uh, ultimately. Um, then we have the administration's own incessant public fretting uh, about escalation, um, you know, which folks, including the former uh, Defense Secretary Bob Gates, have said is counterproductive. What is the sort of broader perception of American power and how do all of these statements uh, and actions uh, actually undermine the United States at a very key point? I mean, doesn't this feed into every single Russian and Chinese trope? It does to a degree, Vago. I mean, look, you know, we're talking before the Senate vote on the supplemental package um, that's been stripped of all the border security uh, stipulations that you had mentioned uh, that had been agreed to in this compromise in the Senate. But even if it passes the Senate, it's just not clear what's going to happen in the House. And, you know, I felt the, the more, well, with with Trump now, you know, in effect, the Republican nominee for president in the 2024 election, anything he says is just going to continue to weigh on what happens with this package. So his comments uh, Saturday at a campaign event in South Carolina, you know, basically again reviving this trope of, boy, if NATO doesn't pay, you know, why should we be carrying their water? Um, Putin should be able to do whatever the hell he wants. I think that was more or less the quote he said. Um, you know, that's got to kind of certainly change uh, the tone and content of you mentioned the, the Ramstein meeting. Uh, there's a defense uh, minister's ministerial meeting in Brussels after that. And then we then we jump into the Munich Security Conference. So 
it's just a very different environment. I mean, the, it's a it's a metric that I've used um, consistently, but all you have to do is just look at the performance of global defense stocks. And European defense stocks are, are handsomely outperforming their American peers because I think people see this change coming. Um, and I'd say the same, you know, if you look at, there aren't a lot of uh, Japanese public uh, defense contractors. They tend to, you know, work with their large diversified firms, Mitsubishi Heavy, et cetera. So it, it's hard to see that in Japan, despite the defense growth that they see. But the South Korean defense stocks have had a great year so far. Same with uh, India and um, Taiwan and Turkey. So, you know, the rest of the world, I think, at least from an investor standpoint, is looking at this and going, well, it may not necessarily benefit the U.S. as much as it's going to benefit these other countries, their industries. And, and that's where at least investors are putting their money. Um, and uh, I would point out, right, I mean, the concern that so many abroad have is that as Republicans are not standing up to Trump, that that indicates a shift in the Republican Party so that any Republican who comes down the road next uh, after Trump is likely to espouse some of these same uh, priorities, right? So that they're going to be cast adrift either way, whether it's it's Trump or it's it's somebody else uh, escalating uh, the, the the levels of, of concern. What are some of the messages you expect to hear, uh, whether in Ramstein, um, we'll see over the coming days whether or not there will or will not be more aid uh, that is actually not assured, as you said, because of dynamics in the House, uh, but also Republicans even in the, in the Senate are calling for, uh, well, we have the right to insert in the floor um, immigration language. All right. I mean, the, the other guy's got a bite at that apple. Uh, you know, this was supposed to be a clean measure or as clean of a measure uh, on, uh, uh, you know, Ukraine aid, Indo-Pacific aid, uh, as well as some aid for in the in the Middle East and for, for Israel. How do you think those meetings play out? And what are the messages you think we're going to be hearing either in Ramstein, either at the NATO ministerial or at Verkunda? Look, I'm not That's expecting okay. anything dramatically different, Fago. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, how much more aid is going to be flow, flowing to Ukraine. You know, you already are seeing, I think the Financial Times had a story about, you know, water, no water in the fire hose. Um, you know, I get these uh, weekly missives from Rokan Consulting in Poland, you know, and the Russians are making, they're limited, but they, they are taking more territory. It's not big. You know, there are still missile strikes that are going on. And as much as Ukraine has been able to pull off some of these spectacular attacks, like shooting down an A-50 uh, uh, Russian Airborne Command uh, surveillance aircraft, you know, at the end of the day, this is not looking good. Um, the the command shakeup that took place in Ukraine, um, you know, the, the manpower shortfalls that they're confronting, and, and the Russians are facing the same thing too, although to maybe a lesser degree. Um, I don't know how Putin really is going to play this. I mean, is this something where he he tries to act more aggressively from a military standpoint in 2024 to really kind of tip this balance against Ukraine? Or does he kind of just step, step back, fight this attritional war um, that kind of slowly be, bleeds Ukraine, but doesn't force the West to act with greater alacrity uh, to really kind of, hey, you know, if we don't do something in 2024, bad things are going to happen later this year in Ukraine. 
And in 2025, you know, Russia could be looking at, in effect, you know, a military victory uh, that um, that no one was thinking about in March of 2022. So I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, I don't think anybody really does. But I do know that, um, you know, uh, what the, the, the one thing we're not going to see coming out of these meetings this week is, you know, the House rolling over and saying, oh, yeah, here's here. Here's the full, you know, 60 billion dollars plus um, for Ukraine aid, military aid from the uh, from the DOD, plus, uh, you know, another, I don't know, that 10, 15 billion dollars in in financial and, and related uh, kind of diplomatic aid. Um, that's not going to happen. Um, are we going to see major new uh, equipment commitments come out of the Europeans? How, how what's left in the cupboard you know we're getting back to that so um it's going to be in the news maybe rightfully in the news after the war uh, in gaza and the houthi actions in the red sea you know had kind of pushed ukraine out of the headlines hopefully this kind of brings it back more squarely into a focal point uh in, in the u.s but but i'm not i don't have great expectations for for a sea change out of all this um, and your anticipation of more aid, uh, right? I mean, by the way, to your point, Dr. Jack Wapling of the Royal United Services Institute, arguably one of the most insightful observers of, of the war in uh, both macro and strategic uh, detail, uh, some months ago on, on our program said, look, um, you know, many, many months ago, he was saying this is a time for more aid to be coming in. He yeah. said, you know, and that the the end will come slowly, but then quickly. Um, that at first it'll be slow losses and then much more dramatic and much faster losses, unfortunately, as military history has shown. Do, do you do you have any anticipation that more aid is coming? Because what Congress is doing is a double whammy. First, it's not only delaying aid to Ukraine, which Ukraine desperately needs on the military side, but it's also delaying the very resources we need to rebuild our own stockpiles, right? I mean, Dr. Bill LaPlante, the Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment, had made that point at a RAND event. Uh, about PPBE reform last week, right? That we're waiting for the money that we need in order to execute a replenishment of our stocks. Ultimately. Yeah, and I think Secretary of the Air Force Kendall was even more pointed on his criticism in Congress and what's what's been going on. Uh, you know, just nothing's getting done. And I mean, his comments were probably more directed about uh, some of the things that he wanted to change uh, that were related to the competition with China, but they're certainly germane to uh, what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, the two are are, are, are interlinked. So, um, but but as I said, Vagel, I just think you know, for for the American public, you know, this just isn't top of mind. You know, they're more worried. To look, look at look at what the opinion polls show, and I I some of this I do think is a leadership issue from the White House that. Uh, President Biden has not gotten, you know, out on on the, you know, he's he's sold his domestic program, but and he's tried a little bit with Ukraine, but not not in the way that I think he should. Where he's really trying to make a case: why is this important? Like, why does it matter to you, um, you know, the person working in a factory or a McDonald's or you know, driving a bus? I mean, it's just <clears throat> they're. The leadership hasn't been there, and, and that's why I think, you know, there are some other motives. Um, you know, I, I still think there are people in the Republican Party who are quite fond of 
uh, Vladimir Putin and think, you know, it's a tragedy. You know, the, the, the Tucker Carlson interview, I think, epitomizes some of those views. Um, you know, that Putin's actually not such a bad guy after all. And why are we, why are we monkeying around with this historical disagreement? Uh, you know, naturally, of course, Ukraine is part of Russia and, uh, you know, Putin's right. And we ought to be aligning with, uh, with, with Russian interests in this. Uh, that's a minority view, but it's still carrying water. Uh, it is uh, astonishing how uh, 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 Russia's strategic messaging through an American vessel has gotten to so many people, uh, you know, depending on what your political stripe is and what news uh, sources you're paying attention to. I, I find it very interesting how almost by osmosis, some of this messaging makes it directly into a large part uh, of the electorate, whether in the United States or or, or abroad. Um, you know, in a note that you wrote last week, you uh, discussed um, or, or, or questioned those who make the case that the period that we're in now is like the 1930s. This has been very popular for almost two decades, right? That we're in an interwar period uh, and increasingly folks have been invoking the 1930s. Uh, I think you were responding to something uh, Hal Brands and a co-author uh, wrote in, in Foreign Affairs. Walk us through your case about how you think some of these analogies are a little bit overwrought as, as somebody who I consider, yeah, I mean, a, a, anybody who knows you knows you're, you're kind of a first order historian uh, that, that makes you such a good analyst. Where do you take exception? Well, to I think, this look, you know, model? Uh, Hal Brands, I think, you know, in that article, The Next Global War, which was um, posted in uh, Foreign Affairs, I think January 26 or so, you know, I don't, I, I agree. I mean, there, there are similar characteristics about, you know, uh, revisionist powers wanting to transform the world order. Um, you know, the I think one of the observations was that instability in one part of the world kind of ricochets um, around and can create instability in other parts of the world. And that, um, you know, we are in an increasingly polarized world that's divided into these different camps. But, you know, if you start straight lining that and saying, well, gee, is 2024 like 1934? I mean, I just don't see the analogy there. Um, you know, one of the starting things is just look at what happened in global, or I shouldn't say global, but just look what happened in defense spending in the 1930s. Notably, you know, the German rearmament, I mean, it's, you really have to use a logarithmic chart to see the growth in this. Um, you know, they went from, uh, it was, I don't know, 610 million Reichmark, Reichmarks in 1931, you know, uh, by 1937, it was over uh, uh, <laughs> 10 billion. Uh, by by 1940, 56 billion. So you know, and, and Russia kind of followed suit. Japan was up there too. But you know, no one's talking about that kind of defense spending growth at this point in time. And I think some right. of it gets down to sovereign debt levels. Um, you know, there are demographic pressures that that you're already seeing. You know, cliffs in some countries' ability to sustain and field military manpower. And, and I, you know, there was another chart I used that showed um, how Japan's armed forces had grown during the 1930s, actually all the way through 1945. Um, and I think the other part about this, Vago, is just, you know, keeping in mind, um, particularly in, in East Asia, you know, kind of the like, why did Japan behave the way it did? You know, they had a war in China. Uh, 
that they, you know, I think by around 1940, they'd lost 200,000 people in it. You know, the U.S. was pushing hard for a political settlement, but China was going to budge. Uh, Japan was not going to budge on that. And, and then you saw the U.S. impose these stricter sanctions on a country um, in Japan, and 70% of their oil came from the United States. So this really became right. an existential threat to Japan. At the same time, <clears throat> you had colonial powers, the Netherlands, France, and Britain, who, you know, the first two had been knocked out, in effect, um, by Germany in 1940. And they were kind of easy pickings uh, for Japan to move south and seize oil and other resources that uh, could replace what the U.S. was de denying Japan. So I don't see a similar analogy to that. I mean, China is not that dependent on the U.S. and and neither is Russia. So this idea, you know, if you're thinking about straight lining and there's going to be this global war, it, it's not remotely going to look like World War II. It's going to be something different. It's it's not to say that we aren't going to see, I mean, I we've talked about entropy and kind of this weakening global order. Yeah, there's still a risk that something could happen in Taiwan. I don't know what Russia looks like in 2026 or 2028. You know, if they've won in Ukraine, you know, do they really, could they be in a position to start, right. you know, knocking on Estonia, for example, or maybe brushing it up with uh, with Poland? You know, so there are a lot of variables here, but um, I just don't see the, the repetition of this kind of straight line from, you know, 1934 to 1940-41, we're not on the same path in 2024 to, to that kind of outcome, in my view. And uh, I want to uh, just uh, put note to the audience that on Wednesday, our guests are going to be Tim Heath and Barry Pavel uh, of RAND, uh, talking about neo-medievalism, which uh, is a report uh, that Tim and, uh, and uh, his team uh, put together that I think is is very uh, is is something that that is worth uh, you know listening to and maybe studying uh, for what it means uh, at a time when you know the global order is in stress in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. Let me just quickly take you to the Middle East. Um, you know, you made a note, if I recall, last Monday uh, that that said that it remains contained right there. You know, every 10 minutes from Washington, uh, somebody from the administration is expressing concern or, you know, news organizations are now mirroring that right uh, about escalation. And, you know, whereas you make the case that it's contained, uh, continue to remind people on what your case is and why you're well, you know, arguing that it's likely I mean, to it's stay that way because because neither the United States or Iran want a wider war, and and uh, you know all along, you know the United States has not. I mean, I think the only time we really struck directly at Iran, at Iran may have been a, a raid um, when they were providing explosive uh, penetrating devices uh, that were killing U.S. troops in in Iraq. Um, but other than that, you know, we've never really gone after Iran. And I think we probably haven't gone after Iran because of the consequences of that. I mean, you really have, will have a, a war in the Persian Gulf with um, some really, <laughs> you know, where, where does this go, you know, from a global energy standpoint, from what uh, Iran may be capable of doing to Saudi or, or Gulf state infrastructure, Um you know, so there's still some rules in the game that I think are being honored by both sides. Um, and and that's why I think, you know, there's always a risk, you know, that that someone flips a car over those guardrails. But 
but so far it seems that uh that the the conflict is going to remain contained and um i suppose that's that's probably a good thing from a, a global security standpoint although people will take issue with hey we should go after iran but you got to think through the consequences of that and, and just how big a bite it, you want to take of an apple that may have a razor blade in it. Definitely <laughs> uh, def uh, said, Byron. Uh, speaking about the Middle East, um, were you surprised at uh, Korea's uh, win uh, in uh, that air defense contract for Saudi Arabia? Not really. I, I just, it, it was one of the, you know, few major announcements that came out of this uh, defense show that took place in Riyadh earlier this week. Um, no, I think it was just another punctuation mark on kind of South Korea's growing defense industrial capability um, and, you know, that they have competitive exports. I don't know the full background on that competition. I, I assume it's to replace older Hawk missiles that uh, Saudi Arabia had been operating. Uh, I assume that uh, Raytheon and, and, uh, you know, European contractors probably had a, a look. They've been eyeing that opportunity. So it's just it's just another sign that, you know, South Korea is, is a globally competitive defense sector. And that has implications for, you know, kind of where else could they pop up? Um, you know, the Saudis are sophisticated buyers. So I don't see this as, you know, something that was necessarily just politically driven or, um, you know, a, a strict alliance consideration on the part of the Saudis. I, I just think it's intriguing. Uh, and uh, that win uh, was uh, by uh, LIG uh, Next One, uh, just for uh, those uh, following uh, the growth and the reorganization uh, of uh, Korean industry. I, I just want to um, take you to a couple of notes. We're going to go to the week ahead. We've talked about some of the uh, uh, dynamics and elements here. But talk to us a little bit about some of the interesting reports that came out last week that folks ought to be paying attention to, whether from our friends at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies and elsewhere in Washington well, yeah, and beyond. That's what I wrote about in my uh, Sunday night note, Vago. Um, you know, it's just intriguing because you had, uh, I don't think there is any specific agenda here other than, you know, there are four separate reports that were issued on different aspects of unmanned air systems. <clears throat> and in the case of the Mitchell Institute report, kind of the conclusions from some war gaming that they had done on the uh, collaborative combat aircraft program or programs. Um, you know, there, there are a range of views. I think each of the reports recognize the importance of this. And, and although, you know, in the case of the CNAS report, I think the, the title kind of, you know, said it all that they thought this is more an evolution in warfare, not a revolution in warfare. You know, where I find it kind of intriguing is part of it is just as a curtain raiser, because I think there are two separate panels at the Air, uh, the Air Force Association event uh, that will be out in Colorado on the CCA program. Um, you know, I thought one of the interesting conclusions from the Mitchell Institute report was they played a war game with with kind of a range of different uh, uh, capabilities in these unmanned autonomous systems. And, you know, what what the war gaming outcome suggested is <clears throat> you want a lot more of these lower cost ones than something in kind of the 25 to 40 million dollar range that a loyal wingman might cost. So that was kind of intriguing. But it raised some other questions. And I think, you know, look, I'm an analyst. You kind of look for numbers and dollar signs in these reports. 
there was some information on the unit cost of these. What what I think is kind of yet to be determined is, you know, are these really operationally effective? You know, what are the economics of equipping a military uh, with more of these units that would operate large quantities of, of, of manned systems? You know, how would that compare to the economics of fielding an artillery battery or a squadron of multi-role combat aircraft? Um, they're not going to replace them, but if they're going to be a, a much more significant augmentation factor, you know, how much would that cost? What does it save you? Um, you know, can you carve out uh, more money from existing force structure and buy um, uh, this the, more and more of these uh, man uh, uh, capability? And, and you know, does that deliver the same operational effects uh, for the same or maybe even less money? And, and the one other thing, I think this came out of the INS uh, report. You know, they just it was just a throwaway line. I shouldn't say a throwaway line, but they they mentioned that Russia is looking at building, you know, it's something like 6 million of these, uh, basically, you know, the small uh, uh, video controlled drones a year. And that's a massive capacity um, that uh, Ukraine is on target for about a million a year. You know, how does that play through to what Russian concepts of how they're going to fight a war in the future are going to be? You know, is this really going to be effective? And what does that mean for European and U.S. security? And, and frankly, you know, where do these exports go? I mean, if you have the capacity to build <clears throat> six million a year, um, you know, that's not going to get mothballed all. So I, I don't know. I just it right. is a change. Um, it's an important change, I think. I kind of agree with Stacy, uh, Petty John and CNAS that, you know, maybe this isn't as revolutionary as atomic weapons, for example, but it sure is. It sure is a change. And, and I commend people to read those reports, all of them. Uh and, and I would point out, right, I mean, one of the reasons why the Deputy Defense Secretary is pushing Replicator, whatever the criticisms of it is, we need to get a lot of capability out there because if the Russians make good on their uh, threat, you're looking at half a million of these uh, first-person uh, video drones being produced, uh, you, you know, on a monthly basis, right, if you if you get to six million, um, yeah. which, is, which is very dramatic. Um, just a couple of things uh, more to talk about before we part. First, uh, a correction. Hal Brands wrote that piece in Foreign Affairs all on his own uh, and didn't have his normal co-conspirator, Mike Beckley, uh, in, involved in that. So I apologize. I said co-author. Uh, just wanted to correct that. Uh, very quickly, uh, Byron, uh, after spending billions of dollars on the future armed reconnaissance aircraft, uh, the Army canceled it. $4.1 in savings will be applied to uh, recapitalizing uh, the Blackhawk fleet uh, and putting more money against the future long-range assault aircraft, which Bell uh, uh, won. Bell and Sikorsky were competing for FARA. Uh, and again, the case being made, look, there are unmanned ways, you know, there are Ukraine lessons and the use of unmanned systems and long-range precision fires will, will change this dynamic and maybe obviate the need for a new scout helicopter. This is the second or third time the Army has done this, right? It got rid of Comanche, then it upgraded the Kiowa Warrior, then it got rid of the Kiowa Warrior, <laughs> used Apaches, yeah. and now we're interested in doing that. Is there any broader lesson here, uh, aside from getting annoyed at billions of dollars of resources that could have gone elsewhere. Yeah, being... I think that's, I mean, I'm, look, you know, but the technology has really changed too, right? I mean, when, when uh, you know, Comanche was killed, it was, it was just a different environment. I don't think, I don't think you had the, 
proliferated LEO space sensors too right. that also can contribute to um to domain awareness. So um look, it was the right decision, I think, for the army to make. Um I think there it was also the timing is kind of intriguing because I gather this was driven by uh, an analysis of alternative study. Um, you know, but kind of coming just before the FY25 budget will be made public, you know, about a month from now, you know, a lot of that budget work had to be done months ago. Um, so maybe there's some kind of, you know, <laughs> calls at the line of scrimmage on um, what's going to be changing in the FY25 budget submission that goes in. But, um, you know, I think the bigger question, Vago, is going to be, so what does this mean for the future of the attack helicopter? Um, you know, are you really seeing that, you know, because ultimately Farah was going to replace part of the AH-64 fleet, and it would have been a logical replacement for the Cobras, the AH-1s that the Marines and a lot of our allies also operate. So, you know, generationally, um, you know, what's the what's the path to a new attack helicopter? There may not be one. Um, right. And that that it's going to be like we don't fly reconnaissance airplanes anymore. Um, there are no RFs, um, to my knowledge, in the, in the Air Force inventory, the inventories of other other militaries. So maybe the attack helicopter is going to eventually fade out in the same way. Uh, although uh, we do have uh, reconnaissance aircraft as RQs uh, yes. that are in uh, in the works, uh, both both publicly known as, as well as uh, highly classified to be able to do some of the things that the SR seventy one uh, as as well as uh, the U two uh, currently do. Um, very quickly, um, we already talked about some of the big events. What are some of the other events uh, that we're going to be covering, and what do you expect to hear from Denver? Go, we've got about a minute. Um, look. Uh... House Armed Services uh, Committee is holding a hearing on expediting and fielding innovation. It's interesting, but hey, pass a budget and then maybe we can talk about innovation. Um, the International Institute for Strategic Studies is going to release the military balance of 2024. I'm very curious to see how they assess the Russian and the uh, Ukrainian military. Uh, retired General Mark Milley, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is going to be speaking at the Association of the U.S. Army. Uh, CSIS is holding an event kind of on the Russo-Ukraine war. Uh, Middle East Institute is holding something on uh, basically uh, strategy for countering the Houthi threat at sea, at the Red Sea. And um, I know, you know, they're, well, an Air Force Association, you know, you talked about the Air Force reorganization that I think is going to be very critical. Um, you know, for me, it's what do they say about CCA? I don't think uh, much can or will be said about uh, the NGAD program, some of the other classified things that are going on. Um, Andrew Hunter, I think, did a great job kind of previewing, you know, some of the themes and issues that he'll hopefully talk about at the conference. Um, I was particularly interested in some of his comments about digital engineering and um, kind of how these next gen programs uh, are going to be using competition, you know, so it's not kind of a winner take all, you know, lose the program and you're out of business for 30 years in this particular market segment. But I, I thought he had some very interesting comments to make at the Atlanta Council event that I believe you're at on Friday, last Friday afternoon. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program and look forward to seeing you in Denver. You too, Bago. Thanks. Safe travels.
Thank you. And a reminder to our audience that the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Tune in tomorrow for our conversation with the Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force, General Dave Alvin, uh, that is going to be released late on Monday afternoon uh, as our Tuesday program. Uh, until then, hope everybody has uh, a great day and we'll see you again tomorrow. Thanks very much.